0: Welcome to the AIER Stand, a production of the American Institute for Economic Research. It should be no shock to anyone that the issue of race is still alive in, in today's American politics. The use of racial classification for the purposes of justice, equity, and research is becoming more and more, not less important after the civil rights movement, but sought to end the government's use of race for nefarious ends. However, the the failings and controversies of the modern American legal legal regime and its relationship to race continue to spark debate and reevaluation today. Joining us today is an expert on this exact topic, Professor David Bernstein, who's an accomplished legal scholar who has published on the topic of race and the law, and is the author of the forthcoming book, Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Bernstein is a university professor and executive director at the Law and Liberty Center at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, the exact school that we're recording here today, and he's also been teaching for over 20 years. He's also taught at other esteemed institutions such as Brooklyn Law School, Georgetown University Law Center, the University of Michigan Law School, and William & Mary Law School. After graduating from Yale Law, he clerked on the Sixth Circuit for the Honorable David A. Nelson. Professor Bernstein, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for having me. Of course. So I want to first touch on uh, the book that you are that is forthcoming, uh, classified: the untold story of racial classification in America. So, just yes, super briefly, wh- what is that untold story?
1: So most of us are familiar with the fact that before the modern civil rights era, we had uh, a racial classification scheme in the United States, in particular, uh, in the South, where different states had different rules regarding. Uh, how we decided who was black and who was white. You could be one quarter black, could be black, or one eighth, or some states had a one-drop rule. And we also um, had rules about uh, who con- was who Asian, and therefore, under the Asian Exclusion Act uh, of 1924, weren't allowed to become citizens of the United States or to immigrate to the United States. And most of us think that this era of racial classification ended... In 1964 with the civil rights act and that nowadays while we all check off these forms on college applications and so forth uh that there's no official racial classification scheme in the united states that's all actually self-identified but in fact uh, all those boxes we check when we're filling out different kinds of applications or forms employment forms mortgages uh green card applications whatever they may be actually come out of official government classifications That the federal government implemented in 1978 and they have real definitions that we're supposed to abide by we're not always informed very well because exactly what they are but uh, they do sometimes have real life consequences so if you want for example to get minority preferences as a government contractor and you check off your hispanic or your black or whatever it may be and someone in the government who's reading your form has has some reason to doubt that you're a member of that group, they will actually ask you to provide evidence and have a hearing as to whether you are really a member of that group. And then um, if you don't meet the definition, Uh, you won't get the contract, you won't get the minority status anyway. Uh, And in some cases where people have claimed to be a certain ethnic group uh, for employment purposes when there's affirmative action program involved, and it turned out they weren't, they've actually been uh, fired by the government for that. Hmm. So
0: we had the civil rights movement to essentially push back against the government using race as as a form of discrimination to keep some groups down and yet today, after, after we passed a, a bunch of laws that were mainly intended for good purposes, you know, to uh, provide justice for various minority groups, uh, these same classifications are now being used in a way that's also detrimental uh, to various ends when it comes to justice.
1: Right. I mean, the official classifications came about for uh, pretty innocuous reasons. So there was a lot of sentiment in the 1950s that after uh, Jim Crow, after the Holocaust, that the best they could do would be abolish these classifications entirely, which they actually did for a time in Canada for the same reasons. Uh, But then once the civil rights laws were enacted, it turned out that some of the laws either sort of required statistics, to, like, for example, how you're going to enforce the Voting Rights Act if you don't know how many Black people there are in a particular district uh, and whether they're being excluded somehow from voting, Uh, uh, and even, like, employment laws and other laws, uh, because the courts were willing to accept statistical evidence of discrimination, there had to be some way to know what those statistics are. Uh, Plus, Uh, After the Great Society, there was an impetus within the government, we want to make sure that different groups are making social, economic and economic progress, and how do we do that unless we can measure them. So the government started collecting all these different statistics, sometimes directly, sometimes through employers or through universities. But each agency had its own definitions. So, for example, for the what we now call the Hispanic-Latino category, some agencies use Spanish surname, some use from a Spanish-speaking household, some separated out Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and did not include Cubans, some did include Cubans uh, uh, as a separate category, and so forth and so on. The same was true for other uh, classifications as well. So, in the early 1970s, the government decided we need to regularize these statistics because we're comparing otherwise we're comparing apples and oranges and forget if one agency is sending us statistics about education uh using one definition of say uh asian american or oriental whatever they would have called it at that time and someone else is using another statistic we can't really compare those so they uh created a committee to try to work out um, these definitions and classifications it was for it wasn't secret, but it was sort of under the radar. No one thought it was an especially controversial or important thing. And when they implemented the rules, ultimately, um, they specify these are only meant for the statistical purposes. They're not sociological categories, anthropological categories, certainly not scientific categories. They shouldn't be used, for example, uh, to determine eligibility for government programs. But... Not surprisingly, with the way bureaucracies work, uh, people did want to, needed something to use for, say, affirmative action programs, and this is what was available, so they just, in fact, did use them immediately for that purpose. So sort of one of the ironies, for example, now, is when we have litigation over affirmative action in higher education, which is coming to the Supreme Court, and, say, Harvard University argues, well, we have to use these classifications to have educational diversity, there was never any inkling By anyone in the government when they created these statistics, that the purpose of these statistics uh, and classifications would be to determine who gets affirmative action for diversity purposes and who doesn't in college admissions. It wasn't even something that was on their radar screen.
0: Hmm. So when it comes to, uh, you know, first and foremost, the idea of who's in a certain race and who's not in a certain race was very nebulous to begin with. Um, and then when we start to start using race as a means of divvying out certain resources, certain benefits, uh, you're only strengthening uh, the neb- like sort the, the of uncertainties that come with trying to make these decisions based off race. We actually need to codify what's a, what's a black person, what's an Asian person, even though, like, most people probably didn't even agree about, like, what's black, what's Asian, what's Latino, what have you in the first place. Well,
1: we have to remember that, um, historically speaking, back when this became a big issue in the early 70s. The United States was almost entirely a country defined by a white majority and a significant, like, you know, ten to fifteen percent in that range a black minority, and because of the history of the one drop rule and so forth, anyone with discernible black ancestry who quote unquote look black or who look white but identify as black once their black ancestry was deemed to be black. So it wasn't really that you know, there were of course always borderline cases, but for the most part everyone knew who was white and who was black. Uh less than one percent of the population of the United States was what we now call Asian American, less than one percent was Native American, and Hispanics, what we now call Hispanics, were classified generically as white. So at the time... uh, no one really thought this is going to be much of a controversial issue because and also it should be added that the race, the, the rate of black white intermarriage was extremely low back in the early 70s. So it wasn't like we're going to get a lot of hard cases because of that, uh, right? I, don't, I think it was like 2% or something uh, for black people marrying someone who was white and even lower for whites, marrying someone who's black. So we so we had this sort of black white binary and no one really thought very hard about what would the, what what would this mean if all of a sudden tens of millions of immigrants came from Latin America and East Asia uh, and 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 South Asia and so forth. So uh, it was done in a really haphazard and somewhat arbitrary way. Just to give you an example, uh, how did the Hispanic category uh, come to be? Well, uh, they didn't know again what to do with this with this classification. Should it be Spanish surname? What about a woman who is Hispanic but's married to someone named Smith? Uh, so that's no good. Spanish le- language household. What if someone doesn't speak Spanish but they? quote-unquote, look Hispanic and have a Hispanic name and may suffer discrimination. So basically what they did literally is they asked for volunteers uh, from different agencies to uh, work on this, and they found one woman who was Cuban-American, one woman who was Puerto Rican, and one who was Mexican-American to represent the three major Latino constituencies in the U.S. They sort of sat them together in a room and they hashed it out Uh, without really any public comment or input or controversy. And the woman from Puerto Rico in particular was insistent that Hispanic was the right term. Hispanic was very controversial. It wasn't used in Latin America. It's still not used in Latin America. It wasn't used by Americans of Latin American origin. A lot of Chicano activists who... uh, they represented the mixed race and indigenous populations of Latin America. I always hated the term Hispanic because they saw Hispanics as Spanish as the oppressors. But nevertheless, this woman said, we kept coming back to Spain. That's the only commonality we could find among all these different uh, national groups in Latin America. So she persuaded the other two to go along with Hispanic and to um, define the category as someone of Hispanic origin and culture. Why does that matter? Well, it matters, for example, because that means it includes people who are of direct Spanish descent, whose ancestors came to the United States directly from Spain, but it does not include Brazilians, uh, who some people would think of as Latino, uh, but it does not include them because they are not of Spanish descent or origin. So it's, we have this weird irony now when it comes to affirmative action programs that a dark skinned brazilian is not eligible as a hispanic uh but it's not really clear what they're in i guess the other classification uh the the random other but they're not hispanic uh and a completely european white person from spain is considered a minority just because of the arbitrary way the classification came about with no real thought given again they weren't even thinking about affirmative action as such uh but that's what it was quickly used for Mm.
0: And I want to, before we keep going on this topic, I want to back up a little bit just so our audience knows exactly what we're talking about. So you've laid out that these racial classifications are highly arbitrary and very messy, and clearly uh, it's causing problems when it comes to using it to enforce laws, divvy out policy benefits, whatnot. So when did we go to the system that we have today? Because obviously pre-1964, the government was using uh, racial classifications for things like Jim Crow, segregation, and then they passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which has things like Title VII that are supposed to provide discrimination uh, barriers and protections to minorities. So what is the what was the general purpose of using these classifications uh, for, I guess, beneficial ends back in the 64 Civil Rights Act era?
1: So really, we have to go back a little bit further than that. Uh, The federal government in general didn't keep racial statistics except for the census. And uh, that varied a little bit from decade to decade, but it was generally white, which included uh, Mexicans, which was the largest uh, Latin American group in the United States and Hispanic, what we now call Hispanics. more generally. Uh, There were classifications of when we got more immigration from Asia for various Asian groups uh, and white also included um, uh, people from the Middle East. And and then there was a separate tally for Native Americans, uh, mostly if they lived on reservations. Otherwise, they might just fall into the white category if they're of mixed race or so forth. Uh, But, you know, very few federal government programs ever specifically uh, related to race, right? Jim Crow is a state law institution or a local institution uh, in the case of Washington, D.C., rather than a federal institution. But then um, starting when civil rights became a more prominent issue in American life, starting in the 40s and 50s, presidents issued sort of the first uh, executive orders requiring government contractors to abide by federal civil rights laws, uh, abide by federal civil rights policies. Anyway, we, we don't want to contract with employers who are discriminating in employment. And uh, the only way to enforce that was to know whether the contractors are indeed refusing to hire people of different ethnic and racial origins so the a government agency called the office of federal contract compliance came up with uh forms for employers to fill out asking them you know to tell the government how many employees you have overall and how many are minorities uh negro as the word would have been then negro oriental uh, as as it would have said then um jews originally uh, Spanish Americans, which is a euphemism mostly for Mexicans, and others. So others, who knows what that means, this created certain problems because the policy until the 1970s, was you don't ask employees what race or ethnicity they are because that could lead to trouble. We want to be neutral. So the employers were supposed to just sort of look at people's faces and last names and guess. uh i i, I guess you could also just make stuff up if they want to i'm not sure how you would enforce this but that's what they were supposed to do i guess it could be audited in some way but in any event uh jews eventually pretty quickly actually dropped off the list this is a combination of black oriented civil rights organizations thinking that Jews didn't really need the same sort of assistance with discrimination and Jewish organizations being uncomfortable with the government singling out Jews separate from the rest of the population. And you have to get this additional problem. How do you know if, you know, uh, for example, I don't know, someone with a name like uh, John black, black could be uh your standard, you know, uh, English name. It could be someone whose name was Schwartz back in Germany and changed to black. And that German could be Jewish, could be not Jewish. So it's a real problem. So uh, basically, uh, partly for reasons of happenstance, partly because of discomfort uh, for among Jews in particular with um, them being tabulated by anybody. And partly because it was a lot easier to just uh, tabulate people who, looked like a member of a minority group who are visibly minority. The categories that the government eventually came up with, uh, they used different terminology back in the early 60s, but your basic classifications of uh, Hispanic, Black, uh, Asian, uh, Native American, uh were basically um implemented then and that became the baseline for when uh in the 64 when they passed the 64 act they again they needed to they wanted to have statistics to make sure that a company you know, a company in the area that's 30 percent black or 30 uh japanese if they're not hiring a lot of people who are japanese or chinese that at least calls maybe for some investigation so they so they basically again uh, started using these categories the problem they faced as i noted was that to the extent they wanted to use the data across agencies, they were getting different reports with different definitions uh, from different agencies. There was no standardized. uh, The Office of Contract Compliance had its own rules, of course, but uh, whether the Department of Commerce, Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, when that was created, the Defense Department, uh, the Health Education and Welfare, and then sub-agencies in the health a changing world where there was no directive, how exactly do we count people? So it was, there were, you know, it, the the uh, formation of these uh, and ossification of these classifications then was, was sort of done sort of haphazardly and innocently. It wasn't, they didn't mean to sort of create um, formal classifications that would affect people's identity, with one exception. Uh, the Hispanic Latino classification was really. Invented uh, to a large extent by the government, there were Latino activists out there, but mostly most Latino activists in the '60s and '70s were Mexican American. There were Chicano activists, and they didn't feel like they had much in common with Puerto Ricans and Cubans and other la- Latinos, um, particularly with Cubans who were less likely to have indigenous ancestry. But um, the Nixon administration, when faced with how do we define how do we start defining, uh, this group of people who, Spanish, who are Spanish speakers or their descendants. Uh, first of all, they say, well, um, we don't, President Nixon said "We don't, you know, to himself, to his aides, there's a lot of radicals Chicano activists that are Puerto Rican nationalists who are hijacking airplanes. It would be better to create a pan-national sort of American Hispanic identity uh, that would uh, hopefully reduce their um ties to their homeland and their specific ethnicities. Uh, There was also the issue that Nixon said, well, we could have separate classifications for Puerto Ricans and Mexican-Americans because they tend to be dark-skinned, as a lot of agencies were doing. But then what about the Cubans? They vote for us. They vote for Republicans. Why should we leave them out of programs that are meant to help Hispanics? Uh, And then there was also pressure from Hispanic media executives, like the founders of Univision, who wanted a broad national audience. They didn't want, as was the case at the time, Mexicans in California, well, we're not going to watch a show from Puerto Rico, or we're not going to watch a show from Argentina. So they wanted to help create a Hispanic identity so they could market to that national thing. So weirdly, the Hispanic uh, classification, uh, which has become so routine we don't even really think about it, was uh, a weird in, a weird invention of a combination of, you know, Bureauc convenience for bureaucracy, Nixonian political machinations and big business.
0: Hmm. So what you're basically uh, communicating is that, um, this idea that we seem to talk. So I guess confidently today in society, when we are talking about race relations, like, oh, you're a white person, you're a black person, you're a, you know, whatever. And then therefore you are this, this, and that, right. Or you deserve this, this, and that like this. These things that we talk so confidently about are actually far more nebulous and a lot messier than most people probably think
1: yeah you know most most of us like uh who attend elite universities and law schools whatever we're so used to these classifications that they come naturally to us but uh interestingly enough at the grassroots it's not nearly as simple despite the government um, both implementing and encouraging these identities Uh, and a lot of political actors encouraging them, too, it's still the case that most people that we call Hispanic or Latino, if you ask them their preference, they'd rather either be called, you know, hyphenated American, Mexican American, Guatemalan American, or just American. They accept Hispanic and Latino as an identity, but it's not their primary one. In the case of Asian Americans, uh, if you go to Harvard, the idea that there is this category called Asian American is just kind of accepted, but... um, Less than ha- like something like thirty eight percent of actual Asian Americans accept it even as a secondary identity has not really caught on especially among people who don't go to the kinds of places where the ideology requires them to do this and even at places like Harvard um, one of the oddities of the Asian category is that it includes people who are nothing alike in any way except that they're from Uh, the continent of Asia, specifically like people from India or Pakistan, South Asians and East Asians, like Chinese or Japanese, they are not ethnographically similar, they're not culturally similar, they don't have the same religions, same anything. Uh, And in fact, it was a close call whether... Uh, South Asians were going to be considered white in the 70s or or uh, Asian. They're initially classified as white in the draft proposal, and then after some lobbying by some Indian American groups, they were switched to the Asian category. But in any event, even with that, we see at almost every campus that has a substantial number of. Uh, Asian students is a separate Asian student organization or sometimes Asian Pacific Islander and a separate South Asian students organization. And the South Asian student organization is then often bifurcated between American South Asians who sometimes feel a commonality because they're a minority. uh, So Pakistanis and Indians and Sri Lankans and so forth will hang out together. But, you know, graduate students from India and Pakistan tend to be very suspicious of each other because of the enmity uh, between their nationalities. So you may actually have that third group. Uh, and then, you know, Filipinos are ethnographically and otherwise also kind of dissimilar uh, and, and and so on. And so, you know, it, it, basically 60% of the world's population uh, is captured within this Asian uh, classification. So um, while, so, you know, it actually gives me some, hope that despite all the centrifugal forces trying to create, trying to tell people oh, erase your actual culture and ethnicity and history and just become this generic Asian American because that's that's convenient and suits our political purposes of trying to create, you know, alliances and so forth, people are actually you know, more to say, wait a second I'm Chinese American what do I have to do with uh, someone from Bangladesh? Hmm.
0: Yeah, and I want to dive into that affirmative action point, or and the, the point you bring up about, especially Asian Americans. I'm sure uh, people can tell by my last name what exactly identify as, but it's certainly, um, I went to, and also the point about uh, Northeast private schools, certainly hits close to home for me as well. I went to undergrad in Connecticut at a, at a private school as well. And so, you know, there's the Asian American category, which came up mostly as a civil rights movement era um, there's murder of a, of a guy named Vincent Chin, and that sparked the whole Asian solidarity movement. Before that, you know, the Japanese want to be Japanese-Americans, the Chinese want Chinese-Americans. And even when I am when I was in college and involved in uh, various Asian-American advocacy groups, you know, there was always these weird infighting between the East Asians and the South Asians. Like, the you know, the Indians wanted more stuff focused on India, and the Chinese people wanted more stuff focused on China. And then, you know, the whole Asian-American project solidarity thing started getting a little rocky. And so I think... So what does that really mean for, uh, especially with the Harvard case coming up on the next Supreme Court docket? Like, what is this, how does how do universities view the idea of race as, as it's applied to affirmative action? And I guess, what are the realities that are created by it?
1: So that, you know, uh, you're gonna be the first person to hear this. So I was just thinking of something interesting this morning, uh, which is basically um, the universities are, you know, who knows, in individual cases, whether they look at a more a more fine-tuned level. But for the most part, they operate at a crude level. How many Asian Americans do we have? How many Hispanics do we have? How many blacks? We have targets, goals. We don't call them quotas because that would be illegal. But we have in mind what we'd like to achieve. And then somehow it always works out to be almost exactly uh, their goal. Uh, but they don't really differentiate uh, within the different groups. Again, there may be a specific case we could say, well, they had two Asian students and one was Chinese and one was Himong and they didn't have any Himongs they prefer, but in general, they're just looking at the crude statistics. And um, it occurred, so first of all, um, this uh, is of course, it's racial discrimination because it's based on one's percep- perception that Asians are sort of the same racial group. Uh, that's what's being challenged in the Harvard case. But there's also um, this weird dynamic. I mean, Asian groups vary dramatically in their socioeconomic success on average. So um, Indian Americans are the, have the highest income of any ethnic group in the United States. Uh, there are other uh, mostly smaller uh, Asian groups like the Haman, like Bangladeshis, uh, and a few others that actually have below average socioeconomic success. And there are some like Filipinos who used to be like the poorest ethnic group in the country who are now higher than average. Um, but especially in higher education, uh, very few schools break out the statistics for us, but it turns out Berkeley does. So I looked at Berkeley's website uh, a while back. It's not in the book, but um, I, I would just say, because the book's not about uh, affirmative action as such, but you know, you learn a lot about these things on the side. So it turns out that the group that is most Heavily overrepresented is actually people from India. They're like 10 times their population. I don't like the word overrepresented, but uh, people use it. Uh, Overrepresented, like 10 times their population. Chinese Americans, for example, are about four times. And I was thinking, why is it that um, Chinese Americans have been the leaders uh, in most cases in the current movement against affirmative action preferences and against closing down the selective high schools, admissions tests, and so forth? It occurred to me that there's two things going on. One thing's going on that we, we, you can look at the statistics for the Ivy League schools and see this pretty clearly, that they froze the percentage of Asians willing to take like 25, 30 years ago. So even though the Asian population has dramatically increased, uh, they're still taking like 20%. So that means that there's more people applying and fewer spots. But it's worse than that if you are an ambitious uh, Chinese parent, because it turns out, again, the schools don't differentiate between, say, people from India and people from China. And um, Indian Americans used to be a very small percentage of the population, but their, their, their percentage has grown really dramatically over the last 20, 30 years. So now it turns out someone like Berkeley, they're taking up a very large percentage of the slots that go to quote-unquote Asians. So um, if you're a Chinese American, uh, again, ambitious parent, want your kids to go to Berkeley, you're faced with potentially, I mean, Berkeley is not allowed to use uh, uh, officially at least race in the admissions, but imagine this is a school somewhere else. Uh, you're faced with a situation where, say, Harvard has frozen the percentage of Asians. So that means that there are twice as many Chinese people in the United States. There's already uh, half as many slots per capita. But then also, all a lot of those slots now are going to Indians who weren't even in, who who are a much larger percentage of population than they used to be, and are more even more overrepresented. So the percentage left for all the other groups is even that much smaller. So this is like, so it's sort of doubly, it's a double whammy. So your kid's chances of getting in because of the informal Asian ceiling uh, is much lower than it would have been. Uh, 30 years ago. Uh, So it has the double whammy of the quota uh, restricting the number, the informal quota restricting the number of uh, Asian students. Overall, and then you have a, a, another group within the Asian category that's very competitive and has gotten more people. So that is one issue. Then the other issue is what about the groups that are actually underrepresented? know so? If you are a member of uh, one of these groups that is like, the, let's say, uh, a Hmong refugee, a child of a Hmong refugee, or grandchild of a Hmong refugee in Minnesota, uh, you're lumped in. With uh, just the general Asian category, even though the socioeconomics of your group may be more like, say, Puerto Ricans or somebody who are getting affirmative action, uh, and it's even worse than that probably from you because if you're the admissions director uh, and you have the choice between the grandchild of a illiterate Hmong refugee who's from a working class family who doesn't have any connections or advantages, and or you could say and may struggle in school in part for social reasons because they're not used to that environment, or the a uh, child of an Indian uh, or Chinese engineer in Silicon Valley who went to a fancy private school uh, and could pay full tuition, uh, you know who is likely to get the nod. So, it, so, So it's kind of a, it's just a generally weird thing, and it doesn't make any sense from a diversity point of view, because the way we operate is that uh, by using these crude categories, uh, so University of Texas, where there was litigation, for example, they might say, oh, we already have 20% Asians, but we only have 18% Hispanics, so we'll take another Mexican-American. Now we'll have our 2,000th Mexican-American. And then someone who's, say, Mongolian uh, shows up and pulls out there puts in the application, and he says, well, we don't have any Mongolians. I'd be your first Mongolian. And they say, well, you're not diverse because we already have 20% Asians. <clears throat> and the Mongolian American would rightly say, "I'm not just some generic Asian American. Mongolia isn't. You know, we don't call ourselves Asians. We're Mongolians. What? Hey, how dare you? Right? How dare you say that? Uh, that? That? You know." the great history of Mongolia going back to Genghis Khan and beyond uh, is no different than the history of the Philippines or ever in the culture. Uh, so it's, it, it is a little ridiculous. So diversity wise, it makes no sense. It's, it doesn't make any sense to uh, you to, to um, fine tune the groups in a very, to not fine tune the groups use very crude generalizations about different groups, even though there are different subgroups that have very different characteristics. <laughs> and it leads because there are several Asian American groups that do particularly well on uh, educationally. It leads to these uh, quotas that um, wind up uh, being heavily discriminatory uh, towards uh, South Asians and and you know all all members of all Asian groups. But it's basically because those few groups take up so many take up you know I only want to use that phrase, but they win really so many of the slots that uh, everyone else is against. And I should say that interestingly enough. When, the Indi- when indian Americans, South Asians were moved at the last minute from the, Asian, from the white to the Asian category because of the lobbying of one particular Indian-American group, another Indian-American group found out about it, it was too late. The change had already been made. And they said, you know, this is a mistake because we're going to lose on two, in two ways eventually. First of all, white people are going to say, why should you get affirmative action in some context when Indian-Americans are well-off and will be resented? And secondly, uh, we're going to be limited to a certain number of slots that are allocated to Asians. And since we're doing really well, that will put more of a ceiling on us than if we were just put in the generic white group. And I think at least on the second point, they really turned out to be right about that.
0: Hmm. So when it comes to assigning essentially benefits on the basis of these rigid race categories, you're, you're saying that not only is it failing to address any of the the, the inherent problems that they're aimed at addressing. But now you're just causing a lot of uh, infighting within various ethnic groups. You're causing a lot of, essentially, it's almost like a public choice critique in the sense that when the government starts getting involved and there's a system and there's a structure at hand, then people are going to try to align themselves to benefit the most from that structure, whatever that structure might actually be. So now you've also caused, I, I remember I read a one of your law review articles is talking about how uh, Mexican Americans didn't want to be classified as non-white because that itself came with its own uh, its own detriments and its own types of issues. When it back, I forgot what the time period you're talking about, but essentially, when the rules of the game start to change and benefits start to flow one way or the other, then groups will start to essentially uh, try to extract as much benefit as they can, try to minimize the detriments from it, um, and so basically, you just kind of lay, lay the playing field for a lot of infighting.
1: Yeah, I mean, Mexican example is a good one because back in the 30s was considered disadvantageous to be non-white. They lobby, Mexican American organizations lobbied for them to be considered white. In the 1950s, when uh, anti-discrimination rules started to be passed, uh, they sought to be considered a minority, but not necessarily a racial minority. And even as late as the 70s, they objected to being considered a racial minority. I think they thought the sweet spot Politically speaking, was to be white, but a minority, Uh, so that's why Hispanic was made an ethnic category. And Now they're lobbying to be made into a racial minority, which the Biden administration is considering the Trump, the Biden, the um, Obama administration tried to do it. Then the Trump administration killed it. Because I think now you know uh, the trend. The trend is well, you don't. You know, if you're if you're associated all oh, with whiteness, that's a, a bad thing, and you you have to be a racial minority to get full the full credit for uh, minority status. Um, but there are a lot of other examples. I mean, you said infighting. There's infighting in the African American community now because a lot of the uh, affirmative action slots, so to speak, that uh, were intentional were intended in some way to um, help. People who suffer, whose ancestors suffered from slavery and Jim Crow, are actually going to immigrants and their children and grandchildren. Uh, there have been controversies at Harvard, at Cornell, and so forth. Uh, in the 1980s, the government said, "Should we really consider African immigrants to be the same category as native-born uh, African um, uh, Americans who've been in the country for a long time?" And they eventually, and they just sort of arbitrarily said, "Yeah, we'll just keep them in the same." They could have said the opposite, and then we'd have a separate category, but they didn't. Um, in the 1990s, there was a big movement uh, to have a multiracial category recognized, um, and all the established civil rights organizations were against it because they were afraid that people who currently identify as, say, black would identify, or Asian would identify as multiracial. If they have one white parent, that would reduce uh, their, the, the number of their constituents and thus their influence it would make it harder to prove discrimination claims because you'd have a smaller baseline and so forth. Uh, and eventually that movement was sort of the air was taken out of it when the government announced, "Well, we're not going to recognize a multiracial category, but now you could count more than one race. And basically, so oh, we kind of won, that's good enough. But then what happened was, as soon as all these organizations kind of disbanded, the government sort of surreptitiously, via the bureaucracy, issued rules to different agencies and so forth and said, oh, by the way, if someone counts, if someone checks off black and white, you count them as black. If someone checks off Asian and black, you count them as black. If someone counts checks off as Asian and white, you count them as Asian. So there's a hierarchy of who you, the 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 most uh, visible minorities or whatever you want to call it get uh, the highest priority. But you don't get counted as both ultimately. So the multiracial movement in that sense actually uh, lost eventually. But they had already sort of given, you know thought they they had declared victory and went home. So, uh, but yeah, the public choice thing is exactly right. That um, I think that. The good news is that if you look at the demographic statistics, that um, Americans are assimilating well, not just assimilating like not assimilating into whiteness, whatever uh, phrase like critics would use, but just like becoming Americans and you know not not you know and being willing to date, marry, have children with, uh, and so forth, members of other groups. There's very high rates of interracial marriage among. Uh, Asian Americans, very high rates uh, among Hispanics. Uh, If you um, include the fact that, like, you know, To a Chinese family, their kid marrying someone Korean would be considered, like, an inter-ethnic marriage. Uh, The rates would be even higher. Um, The rate of African-American intermarriage has gone up. Interracial marriage has gone up from, like, 2% to, like, 22% in the course of, like, four decades. Uh, People then sort of reject the Asian-American classification. They're not thrilled with the Hispanic, whether they just want to be known as, you know, like other immigrant groups as uh, hyphenated American or just American. But, uh, you know, the political forces are operating against it. So we have, I think, uh, two visions of America here. One vision is that we have permanent racial groups and permanent racial enmity. And the only way to deal with it is by having the government classify people by these groups, figure out who's doing well, who's not. They're redistributing resources accordingly. Uh, And we have to do that because uh, racism is built into America and it's never going to change. And the only way to ensure fairness is by... Recognizing these racial differences, uh, codifying them, and uh, acting, and then acting on that basis. The other vision is. While everyone's entitled to pride in their ethnic heritage and so forth, and no one's going to tell you that you shouldn't join the Korean American club or the uh, German American club or the uh, Mexican American club or even the Latino club or Asian club or whatever identity you want to have, that officially the government should be more or less neutral with regard to race, except under very limited circumstances like enforcing the Voting Rights Act or whatever, and that we should all be rooting for an assimilation into a general American identity that in 50 years or a hundred years, there won't be African Americans and Latino Americans. They'll just be Americans with different racial heritages uh, and ethnic heritages. And people think, a lot of people on the left, the critical race theory, crowd and so forth, I think, thinks this is ridiculous. This will Again, they think it's immutable, races immutable, it's built into the fabric of America. Uh, I'd say that you know first of all i think we've made tremendous progress just in the last you know 50 years with regard to race itself but i also like to point out that um, there were other conflicts and differences among groups that were once considered immutable and once considered that there's no way that you know people could just ignore these and they are ignored and we even find them ridiculous now no one really cares that joe biden is catholic Right. This was a huge issue in American life, the uh, hostility to Catholics. It led to a huge growth in the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. It helped defeat a presidential candidate in 1928, and it could have led to John F. Kennedy's defeat. A lot of people would not vote for him because he was a Catholic in uh, 1960. Uh, now we have a Catholic president, Catholic Speaker of the House, uh, majority Catholic justices in the Supreme Court, which occasionally people mention when it comes, it goes, oh, maybe it has to do with their abortion rulings. But in general, no one really cares, right? This is amazing. No one could have anticipated this in 1960. If you told people in 1960 that without controversy, the government would be dominated essentially at the highest levels by Catholics, people would have said, no, the majority will never stand for it. Um, I tell people, you know, 60 years ago, before the civil rights uh, movement success, if I would have given a talk on this topic, most people would would look at me, look at my last name, say, "I was a Jew talking," you know, not necessarily even if they were hostile. That's just the way they would, you know, they would perceive Jews as being different. But really, for the most part, now people. All these different ethnic groups—Poles, Italians, Germans—no one, again, they may have pride their ethnic heritage; it may belong to ethnic organizations, but we don't see them as being different uh, in some uh, immutable way. The way the way we used to. Uh, there are many. There are other. Uh, you know, there used to be also hostility to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and we've overcome those things. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that we can't overcome it with regard to race. And just like uh, most people of European origin, who m- once might have been considered. Irish or Jewish or Jews or Poles, and thus sort of unassimilable, just like we just think of them, oh, they're just Americans, uh, that eventually we'll all just think of ourselves as multi-ethnic, a multi-ethnic country who are just American. Mm.
0: So you talk about intermarriage, you talk about basically a sort of income mobility and social mobility that's possible in countries like America and how that really complicates a picture when it comes to uh, various racial and ethnic groups staying the way they are, right? It keeps changing. And that's why uh, being a little bit more race neutral, race blind might be more advantageous because you don't have to dive into that whole mess of, of various things going on there.
1: And then, for example, within the Black community, uh, there's a new phrase that uh, I just found out about while I was writing the Col called ADAS, American Descendants of Slaves, that we should be giving the benefits of affirmative action aimed at African-Americans to descendants of slaves, not to immigrants. Uh, within the, among Hispanics, there's this, and among other groups that are commenting on Hispanics, like this is recognition, apparently, belatedly, because of a lot of, because the Hispanic vote's been moving Republican, uh, that, wait a second, you know, a lot of Hispanics consider themselves to be white. About over 50% of Hispanics self identify as white. Um, and, you uh, they're you know they're a multi-ethnic group they're not like a race as as such and why are we talking about hispanics as if they're all people of color when some of them are of 100 percent european descent so um uh i think that they're reluctant to talk too much about this stuff because because of affirmative action because they're they know affirmative action is unpopular under legal threat and they're afraid if they pull the string you know the whole thing unravels but um It's becoming increasingly recognized. I mean, conservatives have always been objected to these classifications on you know principal grounds of government should be classifying people it's dangerous, it's immoral, and so forth, but even if you're in favor of classification, there is some recognition like wait, these classifications are pretty crude uh and they're pretty and they're pretty arbitrary and why is it that you know again a dark skinned Brazilian who may actually face discrimination based on race is not a minority, but uh a a person from Spain or Argentina of Italian descent is so I mean I think there's a willingness at least in some circles to to uh, re- revisit all this sort of thing uh, because, really, in some ways, it, it, it's it's not sustainable. It's not sus- the political coalition. I, I think the idea back in the '70s of the whole people of color thing was: well, black people uh, are only you know, 13 or so percent of the electorate. We need allies uh, to. Help to jump on the to be on the bandwagon with us, uh, who are who may also suffer discrimination to help support us. But now it's getting to the point where, well, now African Americans may be fourteen percent, but Asians and um, self-identified Native Americans and self-identified Hispanics are around thirty percent. So they're more than double. So it turns out that you know. You could say that, um, hey, we did all the heavy lifting here to, uh, with the civil rights movement, and we're not now getting the benefits that, that we thought we were getting. So um, that tension is going to, uh, I think, increase. I don't know how what's going to happen, but it's going to be kind of interesting. I mean, my preference would be not that it becomes a struggle of all against all, and all the different groups start fighting with each other, but everyone sort of agrees, like, hey, you know, we should be looking for a common American identity, and as I say in the book, if we, uh, in classified, if we do feel that, Af- that this American descendants of slaves or people who've been forced onto reservations deserve some sort of special. Um, uh, uh, treatment by the government to try to, uh, right past wrongs, we should do that on a non-racial basis. In other words, the fact that, you know, an American descendant of slaves is not the same as someone whose, uh, father was the ambassador to Kenya, decided to stay in the United States after high school, uh, and then was applying to Harvard. Right, that these are they, these are these are different class- categories, and uh, a racial classification would include them both. A political classification of descendants of slaves would not. Same thing with Native Americans. There, are, you, you know, we we some some federal programs. Native Americans use blood quantum, uh, that you have to be at least a quarter Native American by blood, and they'll actually, amazingly enough, uh, horrifically enough, issue you a certificate of blood quantum, which I had no idea about before I I wrote classified. Uh, And some use tribal membership. Both of those are kind of racial classifications, right? Especially like tribal membership, you may be a member of the Cherokee tribe, because in 1830, your great-great-great-great-grandfather was a member, and you inherited it, but no one's been affiliated in any meaningful way with the Cherokee for 180 years, except that you have this sort of racial heritage uh, in part. Uh, so if, but if we say, hey, people who live on Native American reservations, that's, that's a political category. Those are the Indians who suffered the most from state oppression they were not able to assimilate they were not able to join nation American society and it's not a racial category it doesn't include everybody who could claim one quarter Indian ancestry or Indian tribal membership based on race it just includes people who uh, have certain political relationship to the US government
0: so when it comes to and I'm on your point about uh the the base like the racial cat, um, coalition for political ends I know of, I mean one of your papers you mentioned the term aapi which is like the new uh, term Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, and it used to be just Asian Americans, and now they're clumping together, Pacific Islanders, for and mostly for exactly this, the purpose used. Outline which is to have a bigger electoral force uh, when it comes to like the political political stuff. So, I was wondering, I guess, almost like near the final question, is do do you think that this this is sort of just a phase based on because you mentioned how things are changing, pl- the political winds are drifting, you know, different ethnic groups are voting in different ways. I believe in the 2020 election i think it was only white men who voted more democrat than the other than all, and all other groups shifted more percentage towards the republican side so do you think this is just when it comes to working towards a common american identity or at least uh, just getting rid of all these unproductive terms do you think we're just it'll come with time do you think there needs to be more heavy lifting do you think it's just sort of a phase of one particular political moment i was wondering about your thoughts on that
1: sure i, I can't I can't was just commenting on the AAPI thing because it's ir- ironic that activist groups are now calling themselves that because in the official government statistics uh, and when you fill out college applications and whatnot, those the it used to be the original category was Asians and Pacific Islanders, uh, which would include Native Hawaiians, uh, and then what happened was in the eighties and nineties. Uh, people in Hawaii, which has both a large Native Hawaiian population and a large population of Samoans and other Pacific Islanders, they found they were applying to colleges in California. And when they applied to College in California, the colleges were discriminating against them. They said, oh, you're, because they're in the Asian category, we have this uh, soft quota on Asians. So we're not going to, so not only are you not being benefited from being a member of a minority group, you're being harmed. So Hawaiians lobbied to have the group included with Native Americans. Native Americans didn't want them because they didn't want the resources they get from the Bureau of Indian Affairs being shared with Native Hawaiians. So a compromise was reached in which the uh, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander group was split off from the Asian American group so they could have their own affirmative action category. So it's kind of ironic that now AAPI has become a thing because politically speaking, in other contexts, they, 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 the, the Pacific Islanders uh, wanted to separate. In any event, um, as far as the broader question, you know, I'm a law professor uh, rather than anthropologist or sociologist, so I'm I, I, you know asking me to predict the future on this. Even it would be even hard for them, but is uh, even worse for me. But I will tell you what the uh, sociologists say. Uh, there are some sociologists who think that we are gradually moving towards this common American multi-ethnic identity that American, that being an American won't be associated with race anymore. It'll be associated with being uh, a, a sort of a mix the way that you wouldn't necessarily associate Mexican with race or Brazilian with a specific race. Uh, although maybe in those countries people do, I don't know, but at least as an American, I just, I think of Mexico as just being a multiracial society. Um, there's another group that I think that, uh, the centrifugal forces are sufficient that we will probably have something resembling the current classifications, although they're subject to shifting. Like I, I I think it's hard to imagine that South as a South Asian uh, population grows, that they're not going to somehow split off from the East Asian. Um, There's also a movement in the government to make MENA Middle East, and North Africa, a separate category, which would be an extra division in society. Uh, So there's some forces that way. And the third possibility is and I think the most unhappy one, in, perhaps in a way, are those who think that all other racial and ethnic differences in the U.S. are mutable, but the black-white thing is never going to change. <coughs> and the ultimate division will be between all other Americans and black Americans, and maybe some especially dark-skinned members of the other minority groups will, be, will, will associate themselves and be more associated with blacks. I, I can't tell you which of those, or maybe there's, there are other options that we haven't even imagined. I'm really hope, hoping for the first one. And, you know, the book calls for uh, the separation of race and state. Um, And I use that phrase advisedly because I think we want the separation of race and state for the same reason as the separation of church and state, that people feel very strongly about ethnic and racial heritage, just like they feel strongly about religion. It uh, Dividing society in that way causes tensions and potentially even civil wars in ways that other kinds of classifications don't. Religious classifications do this and racial ones uh, do it as well. It's uh, morally questionable to have the government favor one race or another in any context, as it is with religion. Uh, and it turns out that you could have pluralism uh, much more easily where everyone's accepting of each other and you have... So, you know, we have, we sort of uh, have a common American creed because of, you know, not the full separation of church and say it's a myth, but because of the basic uh, idea that government doesn't intervene much in religious matters. Uh, um, yeah, Eisenhower says something famous along those lines. I don't care what religion someone is as long as... Uh, he believes in the basic American creed or something like that, which of course means it's not all religions. But uh, anyway, um, the, so uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. And I do think that uh, the more, but, but, but there are contrary forces. The one thing I think that is uh, most disturbing to me now is this movement within the medical profession um, urged on in some ways by local governments, state governments, and by the federal government to give the medical care based on race uh and prefer people of supposedly historically oppressed groups uh, regardless of their individual circumstances uh for medical treatment and that's the kind of thing that you know college admissions causes some tension but you know what if you don't get into harvard you get to tufts you know or whatever you will your life will be more or less the same ultimately uh but you know granny's in the hospital and uh, some bureaucrat says, well, we have this you know, ethnic chess list and you only get three points, and and, and someone else's grandma uh, is of a preferred racial group, and even though they're a little bit less sick than your grandma, they get seven, so they go first, and your granny dies and their gra- and, and she could have been saved if they, had, you know, that's the kind of thing that it strikes me as uh, leading to all sorts of horrific uh, potential consequences, not just in the sense that Deciding on medical care based on race itself is horrific, but in the sense that um, I can't imagine anything that would be better designed to cause friction, uh, tension, potentially violence. Mm.
0: And I think you're referring to uh, I think the CDC released somewhat at the CDC released a presentation essentially calling for the divvying up of vaccines based on race uh, rather than out based rather than age, right? Because we've identified that, of course, older people die at higher rates. That's why older people should get the vaccine first. And I believe there is a whole controversy at the CDC because someone made a presentation about we should actually do it based on race and not on age. And that obviously the justification might be that, you know, that old white people, you know, are not, don't have it as bad as young black people. And therefore, you know, that's the whole Pandora's box that they're opening up. And now it sounded very similar to what you said. (laughs) Um, I want to end by asking, I guess, a legal question, uh, for something you might be able to answer more more fully is that when it comes to going forward, you know, we still live in a, in a country with plenty of discrimination, plenty of inequity, plenty of, of disparities and whatnot. And the one side wants to essentially, they would listen to what you just said. It's like, okay, it's very complicated. Therefore, you know, we just need to beef up the Leviathan, right? Just to get more... Uh, racial studies do- doctorates into the government, you know, just empower the state more so we can figure it out even better. What would, What is your ideal legal framework and I get an or enforcement regime when it comes to, I guess, yeah, policing a, a, or educating disputes in a country as diverse as America?
1: Well, again, I think, you know, we can look at uh, the religious uh, context. No, the government doesn't, is not allowed to favor any particular religion It's allowed to recognize the existence of religion and take into account the existence and prohibit discrimination based on religion, Uh, but it doesn't play favorites. It doesn't say, oh, you know, the Mormons were driven out of Kansas in 1850, and therefore uh, they get medical treatment first, or the Jehovah's Witnesses were suppressed in the 30s and 40s, and therefore Jehovah's Witnesses uh, uh, should be classified as differently than other Americans and be given different benefits. Uh, And I think we could do the same with race. The history of government and race not just the United States, but throughout the world, isn't a happy one. Uh, we should not be um, Panglossian or even uh, or, or, or even optimistic about uh, the government's capacity to wisely deal with race. And we should really stop talking about the government, right? Because because that, that that implies there's some singular entity that we could reason with that could come with. We have to think politicians, uh, politicians and bureaucrats. The question is: Do you trust politicians and bureaucrats to decide? who is of what race, how we define it, what the classification should be, and then what benefits you get or don't get based on uh, those classifications. Again, things like enforcing civil rights laws, okay. But once you get beyond that and make classification uh, a significant part of American life officially, um, you're asking for trouble. And I mean, the only good news is that I think with things like medicine, the one thing I can say about medicine uh, is that if you actually told people that that, that, hey, Blacks, then Hispanics, then Asians, whatever, a lot of people are going to suddenly discover a real or a fake fake uh, ancestor of one of those ethnicities, right? No, people don't really want to lie in college admissions. They do sometimes, but it's not nearly as prevalent. But I think once life and death situations, uh, because in, even though there are official definitions, because in practice um, they are uh, uh, self-identification is the norm, uh, Self-identification of if you actually got to the point where you're divvying up uh, medical care for sick people based on self-identified race, maybe that would help cause the whole uh, uh, the whole deck of cards, the whole wall of cards to collapse. Because I can't, you know, honestly, if I were in a life-threatening situation and I knew that. Uh, that someone else might get ahead of me because they checked off some other box on their admission form at the emergency room, I'm checking the same box.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And cert- I hope uh, more Americans will definitely listen to your insight and your input. And certainly I hope your book has many great sales as well.
1: All right, thanks so much.
0: Professor David Bernstein is a law professor at George Mason University, the Scalia School of Law, and he's the author of the forthcoming book, Classified: The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. If you like what you heard today and you want to support more of AIER's content, make sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, as well as check out our our various podcasts on Spotify. If you really like what you heard and you want to support more cutting-edge research and and outreach like this, make sure to become a donor. All that information and more can be found at AIER.org. Thank you.